Welcome to the Dream for Others podcast. I'm Naomi Arnold, an award-winning business and life passion coach, writer, speaker, and human rights activist. This show features inspiring conversations with those who use their platform, passions, and uniqueness to make a difference in the world. If you are big-hearted, open-minded, a lifelong learner, and are on a mission to help create a better world, this is the podcast for you. Now let's get started and dream for others. Today I am honoured to have Julian Burnside on the Dream for Others podcast. Julian is an Australian barrister who specialises in commercial litigation. He is also a refugee and human rights advocate who has provided legal counsel on a number of high-profile cases, including the Tampa Affair and cases against BHB and Gina Reinhart. He has acted pro bono on many human rights cases, in particular concerning the treatment of refugees. Julian is passionately involved in the arts, collects contemporary paintings and sculptures, and regularly commissions music. He is the author of a number of books, including Watching Brief, Word Watching, and From Nothing to Zero, and he has won a number of awards, including the Sydney Peace Prize, being elected as a living national treasure, and being made an Officer of the Order of Australia for service as a human rights advocate, particularly for refugees and asylum seekers, to the arts as a patron and fundraiser, and to the law. As you can probably imagine, I was incredibly excited to have an opportunity to interview Julian and get his thoughts on the many causes that he has championed throughout his career and life. Hi Julian, thank you so much for making time to speak with me today on the Dream for Others podcast. Hi there, so far it's been fine. <laughs> it's good. I've had a lot of people reach out in my community asking for an interview around refugees and human rights. So. I was very excited when you said yes, so thank you. Now, I'm going to launch in because I have a lot of questions for you. And to start with, I thought for those who haven't been following you like I have been for a long time and aren't familiar with your work, could you please just begin by telling them a bit about your story and how you came to be doing what you are and what led you to becoming involved in human rights and activism? Yeah, well, it's it's actually one of a series of accidents that have marked my career. I mean, my entire career has been character. My life has been characterised by accidents. So at the end of year twelve, I didn't know what I wanted to study, but I did quite well and got into four or five faculties, I think, uh, several at Melbourne University and several at Monash University, and I had no idea what was the best way to go. Uh, but um, there was a, a guy I'd known at school who was good company and he was a year or two ahead of me and he was doing law at Monash. So I decided to do law at Monash for the very simple reason that I thought it would be nice to know someone at university rather than to be <laughs> there as a stranger. And as it is, I never actually saw him, but um, that's that's why I ended up doing law. By second year, I figured out that I'd probably it would probably be good to do something which would set me up to make an income because I had a sort of vague idea that I might be an artist, but I also wanted an income. Mm -hmm. So I picked up an economics degree with a view to becoming a management consultant, which back then in the late 60s was this sort of occupation du jour. And that was um, all very good and it was humming along. And then in, I think, 
1970 or 71 perhaps, I was invited to take part in the Monash InterVarsity Mooting Competition in New Zealand. Now, mooting is like pretend court. And back then it was uh, not compulsory. It is compulsory now, I think. But back then it was voluntary and it attracted nerds. So I immediately gravitated to it. <laughs> and um, and I get invited to be part of the Monash InterVarsity Mooting Team in Auckland. Now, I hadn't even been to Tasmania at that stage. So the idea of a free trip to New Zealand was immensely exciting. And I said yes. And I had the good fortune to win the Blackstone Cup as the best individual speaker. And the final moot was presided over by the then Chief Justice of New Zealand, who was talking to me at the sort of prize giving drinks session afterwards. And he asked me what I was going to do. I said, I'm going to be a management consultant because I didn't think I could tell him I wanted to be an artist. And, um, and he looked at me gravely and said, you should go to the bar. That was my career planning. <laughs> that, that short conversation with the most important person I'd ever met shaped my future career. Now, it occurred to me a couple of years ago, it'd be very funny if what he really meant was go and get another glass of wine. <laughs> I don't know what his attitude to uh, management consulting was, but it's possible. And I like the idea that my, my career might have been based on a misunderstanding. Yes. Um, but later that year, that Christmas, um, one of the other people in the team gave me for Christmas the Irving Stone biography of Clarence Darrow. Now, Clarence Darrow was the great trial lawyer of America from the late 19th century to roughly the 1930s. And he fought for causes and he, you know, set himself against the crowd. And I, I thought, wow, if that's what it is to be an advocate, that really looks like good fun. Mm. So um, that's how I came to be a barrister. And although, although Clarence Darrow was the real inspiration for it, because I had an economics degree and I had majored in accounting and understood accounting fairly well, very quickly I found myself being briefed in commercial matters and doing um, you know, cases for the tax office and stuff like that. And um, so Clarence Darrow territory was a long way off but then in 2001, when the Tampa episode happened in Australia, mm. I was asked by a person I knew whether I'd be willing to act pro bono for the people who were being held on the decks of the Tampa, uh, having been rescued when their refugee boat sank in the Indian Ocean. He asked me if I'd act pro bono for the asylum seekers on the Tampa, and I said yes knowing absolutely nothing about refugee law or refugee policy or pretty much anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, but by the end of the case, I'd learned a hell of a lot about what was going on. And I thought, this is really not what Australia ought to be about. So I thought, oh, well, I'll persuade the country that what we're doing is wrong. And when the public change their mind, the politics will follow. Mm -hmm. um, I was wrong about that. I thought it would take six months, and clearly that was wrong. Um, so that's how I got into doing pro bono work for refugees. Um, and one one thing I do remember from my economics degree is that when the price falls to zero, demand goes vertical. And that, so I've found myself since 2001 increasingly being asked to do um, pro bono work 
for refugees and other and other human rights causes. Yes, I bet. I, what, I love so many things about what you shared there and one of the things is, is that I speak to, as a coach, a lot of people who don't know what they want to do when they grow up, as we're told to think about when we're younger and they're trying to figure it all out now before they take any action or do anything and it sounds like you followed the clues and your values and things started to happen accidentally, as you said, as opposed to waiting to figure it all out to act. Yeah, well, look, I mean, a lot of people these days, at least, tend to do what their parents or their teachers tell them they ought to do. Mm. And I think that's a big mistake. I mean, maybe, you know, your, your parents or your teachers might actually hit the mark. And if if a person is persuaded straight away that what their parents and teachers think they ought to be doing is right for them, well, then terrific. But... You've only got one life, and I figure you have to live your own life, not the life someone else wants you to live. And that that means, and of course, careers teachers don't like it when I say this, but I think it means ignore what the careers teachers say <laughs> and set your own course. Um, but, it, it, you know, about 30 years ago, I read a, sto- a story or a collection of short stories by Frederick Raphael, a very good English writer, and he put together a collection of short stories under the title Oxbridge Blues. Mm-hmm. So it's all about people at one or other of the great English universities. And one of the stories, and it really left its mark on me, it was called Benchmark. And it's about this guy whose father is a QC and he's grown up with the expectation that he too will become a barrister. Uh, and he does well at school and goes to university but from his teenage years, he has enjoyed writing poetry. And he continues writing poetry whilst he's at university. But whilst he's at university studying law, he meets the girl who later becomes his wife. And she gently guides him away from poetry to concentrate on law. He does well and becomes a barrister, does well and becomes a QC does well and is appointed to the bench. And so he has to spend a weekend in his chambers clearing out the accumulated paperwork of a lifetime as a barrister. And the story ends with a devastating chapter. Uh, I keep it with me. The The final paragraph says this. He had quite forgotten about his adolescent poetry and was astonished to come across a batch of it at the bottom of a cupboard. He smiled, golly, at the sight of it and took it out and started to read for a laugh. He expected clinching evidence of the folly of youthful pretensions. His whole happy life had been founded on the assumption that he'd been right to abdicate before his wife's gentle, unmistakable judgment. He sat on the floor of his chambers, boyishly grey and prepared to be embarrassed by those unburnt embers. Instead, the poems passed sentence on his life. At last he closed his eyes to escape their indictment, but the unblinking eye in the centre of his forehead gazed and blazed with unique and undeniable vision. He cowered on the floor of the dusty cave and saw that the years of his life had escaped like Odysseus's men under the panicky sheep of the blind, deluded Polyphemus. Who are you? Who are you? He cried. And the voice of the man who had blinded himself replied, No one. I still get shivers when I read that or think about it 
I think it's devastating. I told that story and read that last paragraph at a, a meeting of the Melbourne chapter of the Harvard Club um, a couple of years ago. And at the end of it, a bloke came up to talk to me with his daughter who just enrolled in law at Melbourne University and his son who just graduated and was about to start work in one of the big multinational law firms in Melbourne. And after a while, the son leant forward to me and said quietly, you know, I always wanted to be a poet. Mm. I thought, oh, my God, I don't know whether I saved him or ruined his life. <laughs> wow. That's a example as well of how the arts and how writing and poetry can have such an impact on people's lives. So important. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and it's also a reminder, you know, I mean, I'm really passionate about the arts. It's a reminder of the fact that the two groups in our community who are under-rewarded are creative artists, and I include composers, painters, sculptors, poets uh, in that group, and teachers, mm -hmm. and yet they are the most important. Mm -hmm. We really ought to reward creative artists and teachers far better than we do, and maybe accountants, economists, lawyers, doctors could be rewarded rather less. Mm, yes. Oh, you would make some people cranky saying that. <laughs> oh, well, I have a knack of <laughs> I agree with you. And I actually had a question for you around the arts, which I was going to ask you later, but since we're talking about it, I might, I might bring it forward. And mm. it was around I went back to my high school recently. They invited me back to a career day. And they were doing speed dating and the different careers were standing around in a circle and I was standing there. I was the only online business owner. I was amongst police officers and shop owners, like retail shop owners, um, teachers, doctors, people like that. And the kids had, I think, about two minutes with each of us to go around and none of them, none of them mentioned the humanities or arts. They were all wanting to be doctors, police officers. There was some hospitality in there. Basically, they wanted to be what they were good at, the subject that they were good at at school, or if they were good at arguing with their siblings, they wanted to be lawyers. Um, it, was, it was shocking to me. I, I walked away as someone who, who loves the arts and humanities just thinking, oh, that's sad. So it could have been a, an off-sample that day. But I'm curious, how can we... Do you have any ideas for how we can bring that out more in kids and in teenagers to actually open their minds to these different possibilities of, of work and living and involving more of the arts and even the humanities in, in their life and careers? Uh, look, it's a good question and I don't know the answer. I think the problem is that our society is obsessed with uh, making money, you know, making money seems to be the highest aspiration of all mm. and the better your income, the better you are, as it seems. And yet there's a very interesting thing. I, I, I came up with this thought experiment um, some while ago. Imagine a room with 50 or 60 people in it, all of fair intelligence and reasonable education, and give them a list of names drawn from the last five or six centuries. Mm. And I assert and I've never actually done it, but I assert that disproportionately people will recognise the names of novelists, painters, composers, uh, poets, 
but not lawyers, doctors, accountants. They'll recognise one or two um, kings or others, but disproportionately to the numbers in society, they'll recognise artists. Mm. And if I'm right in that, then it tells you something very significant about how important the arts are. You know, the arts, I think, lie at the foundation of any civilised society. Law is important too, you know, without the law, you can't, you can't have society, but without the arts, you can't have civilization. Yes. Oh, well, we're not going to solve that one overnight either, are we? It's so no, complex. But, but, people, but people, you know, kids who, are, kids who are planning their careers really need to bear in mind that um, we, we pass this way but once. Mm. And to lead an unsatisfying career while your possible career languages, while the activities that you really were drawn to lie ignored, then that is to waste your life. Yes. And what matters is not how much money you leave to your family, but how much you can make of the life that you live. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes that isn't in such a black and white terms that we seem to have or are taught. You don't have to be either or, you know, you can't, you don't have to be a lawyer or a poet. Um, they seem to, when I was talking to a lot of those kids, feel like they had to choose one thing over the two things that they were interested or the multiple things that they were interested. You can find ways to bring all of those things into your life. Maybe. Uh, it's, it's um, I mean, being a creative artist mm. doesn't sit very comfortably with being <laughs> a practising doctor or lawyer. No. <laughs> uh, I'm, there, have been, there are some examples, but yeah. it's very difficult and there's only 24 hours in every day and most people need to sleep a bit. Yes. <laughs> so it's difficult. And frankly, being a part-time creative artist mm. is not likely mm. uh, the best outcome for someone who's genuinely an artist uh, but finds themselves practising as a, an accountant or an economist or something. Mm. The best outcome is for them to realise that they are really drawn to the creative work they're doing and that will come to dominate their time at the expense of their, you know, proper career. Yes. In inverted commas. Yes. Yes. And hopefully the proper career can fund the dream for a little while. Well, they, I don't know. I don't have the well, answer. Well, that's it. That's it. And, and that is, it's really, it's funding yourself and your aspirations that mm. is ultimately what drives these things. And that's why I think as a community, we ought to try to support our artists better. Mm. Uh, there's a really very, very good article by Alison Crogan in the October edition of The Monthly in which she talks about the devastating effect uh, on the arts in Australia of not only the stripping $100 million out of the Australia Council's funding, but... Um, the other ways in which the arts are being ignored in our community. It's a really important article. And frankly, unless we're going to leave as a, as a, a generation, unless we're going to leave a sort of a, a trace of ash in the archaeological record, we really need to take the arts a little bit more seriously. Mm. There's a, in the same edition of the monthly, there's a very interesting article by Richard Flanagan um, in which he's, his main thesis is the importance of writing. And he, he makes the point that during the 
2015 uh, year, Australia spent something like $1.2 billion um, running offshore detention camps for refugees. Mm. Um, and the, you know, Manus and Nauru. He also, he also makes the point that creative, uh, creative writers were funded to the extent of $2.4 million during the same time. Mm. He makes the point that if we wanted to, that Australia, if Australia was going to fund its writers properly, um, then what it is doing at the moment is spending 500 times as much brutalising people in offshore detention centres as it's spending supporting writers. Mm. It would take 500 years uh, for the amount spent on writers to equate to one year of spending on offshore detention. And that's a grotesque comparison when you think about it. Yes, it's shocking. It sounds like I need to read the monthly more often as you speak, actually. It's very good. And, you know, one thing that really impresses me about the monthly, the monthly is part of Black Ink. Black Ink produces the quarterly essay, the monthly and the Saturday paper, mm -hmm. um, and it also publishes various books. Black Ink is the creation of Maury Schwartz. Maury Schwartz makes his money as a property developer and then spends it, and I suspect that he loses quite a lot of money, um, supporting the arts through those publications. And I think it is sensational, and more people ought to nod to Murray in the street and acknowledge what he's doing to Australian culture because he is making an enormous contribution. And most mm. people don't think that property developers stand out for recognition, but Murray's doing great things. Mm. He's a excellent example by the sounds of it of the very things that people are attracted to this podcast for with using your platform and and your passions to to do good in other ways outside of your work as well yeah yeah and on that you yourself have over a period of time contributed in all different ways as well obviously through the pro bono work that you were talking about in in your passion of speaking up about the arts as we've been talking about and I know through a whole heap of other ways as well have they been accidents too you've found yourself stumbling into these different ways or have you had a plan with them <laughs> my life is a perfect example of no planning um, I'm not sure which other ways you're talking about can can I say I, I think Probably. I mean, I've spent a long time trying to support the arts, um, having once wanted to be an artist. I think I did the arts a great favour by becoming a lawyer, actually, and maybe ultimately that's my best contribution to the arts. But what I've tried to do in collecting paintings, I, right from the start, I had a, a sort of mildly flexible rule that I would buy work by young unknowns because they're the ones who need the sales they're the ones who um, most appreciate the fact that someone has bought their work. Mm. And I've also had a, a, an inflexible rule that I never sell uh, um, a work of art that I've, that I've bought because I think the point about buying art is you buy it because you enjoy it. You don't buy it as an investment to sell it later and make money. I hate the fact <laughs> that people go along and buy big names typically at auctions where they're buying big names who are dead, mm. um, in the hope that they will ultimately make a profit when they resell the work. I think that's awful. You only support the arts by buying the work that is being produced. But I suspect 
that my most, well, most maybe most enduring contribution to the arts is that I make a point of commissioning a couple of pieces of music every year. It often happens that I don't hear the music played because that's just, you know, difficult to arrange for mm -hmm. the composer. Mm -hmm. And all I get from it is a score, which looks nice, but I can't read music, so <laughs> it's kind of meaningless to me. <laughs> it, may be, it may be the only contribution to the arts that I make that is wholly altruistic because <laughs> my tastes in music typically... Um, run to the conventional classical models. Um, and after the end of Shostakovich, I find myself struggling a bit. Um, but I do think it's important that people who can should try to commission music because being a composer must be the most difficult and thankless occupation. You know, at least, you know, they, they sit alone and they write this stuff. And at least if they're a poet, they can put it together as a book and publish it and a few people buy copies and they get some gratification from that. But a composer will write stuff and they won't get paid for it until someone plays it. Mm. And so commissioning music means that at least the composer will be able to pay the rent and feed himself or herself. Mm. And, and I've actually encouraged people to do this and People I know have sort of formed little groups so that between them they'll kick in the amount that's necessary to commission a piece. And all of them who've done it have said how immensely gratifying it was to know that a piece had been written and to hear it performed if it gets performed and so on and so forth. So that's it's kind of accidental that I found myself doing that, but because, um, you know, first of all, I didn't realise just how hard it would be to be um, a composer. And second of all, I didn't know how to go about it. You know, you want to buy a painting, you go to a gallery. Yes. But how do you commission a piece of music? And luckily, at the time the thought occurred to me, I was on the board of Music of Eva, which is a, a really, you know, the, the biggest presenter of chamber music in the world. Um, anyway, so its head office is in Sydney, and I used to go to the board meetings there. And at one point I was speaking to a member of staff who was a composer, and one thing led to another, and so um, probably the first half dozen pieces of music I commissioned were commissioned through Music of E because they would put me in touch with the musicians or with the composers, and they would also make a point of making sure that music was played in one of their series around Australia, mm -hmm. which is you know, was very gratifying to know that it was at least being played whether or not I liked it when I heard it was beside the point as I saw it <laughs> yes. because, I mean, that's a reflection on me, not on the music. Yes. Wow. That is, I had never even thought about that as, as an option to commission music in that way. Thank you. You've opened my mind and heart up in a new way there. Good. Well, you know, it's, it's got this in common with the rest of the sort of human rights stuff that I do. Mm. The first big step we all have to take is to imagine ourselves in someone else's position. Imagine yourself as a young painter who's struggling to survive. Imagine yourself as a composer struggling to make a living. Imagine yourself as someone living at the margins of society, despised and miserable and hated, 
that step of imagination is a great motivator. Mm. It gives you an idea of where to go. Yes, it can be powerful in so many different ways. And I was just thinking as you were talking then when I was reading your book, Watching Brief, and you mentioned that as you started to get more involved in this type of work and in human rights and and talking or speaking up about issues that are now political, um, that you started to get some personal attacks. So is that part of what helped you get through as well as actually standing in the shoes and imagining in the shoes of the people who were throwing this stuff at you as well? Or did you use different tactics there to get through? Well, actually, that it may in a long sense be another example of the same thing because having decided that the politicians on both sides were making political capital out of beating up on asylum seekers, mm-hmm. I figured that... Um, the only way to deal with the issue was to try and persuade the public to see things differently, to see through the fog of deception that our hypocritical politicians were putting out. And so I thought, well, when people sent me hate mail, which they did in abundance um, during the first phase of this, so to about 2006 or seven, mm-hmm. I thought, these are people who clearly don't agree with me, so maybe I should answer them all and try and persuade them. You know, if I can't persuade the whole country at once, I'll try it one <laughs> at a time. Uh, I hadn't done the arithmetic. It was pretty bad thinking. But anyway, <laughs> so I would sit up late at night and typically, you know, their, their, their emails were generally of the same sort Mm. Uh, they raised generally the same objections based on the on the deceptions that they'd heard from politicians. And so I would sit up at night and they were incredibly rude, unbelievably rude. It's, it's really hard to believe just how rude people are willing to be to someone they've never met when they just email them and abuse them roundly. Anyway, so I'd sit up biting my tongue and I'd say, dear so-and-so, thank you for email. I gather you don't agree with me, but did you realise... Well, A, these people aren't illegal. They don't commit any offence by coming here. B, almost all of them turn out to be genuine refugees. Uh, C, there isn't any queue. And, you know, dealing with their objections point by point. And very often they would reply. And quite a few of them replied saying, actually, I didn't realise that. I agree with you now. Um, Others would say, that's all very well, but then there's this and this and this. And I'd reply saying, well, actually, yes, but there's this, that, and the other in response to that. But what was interesting was all the replies were polite. And after many thousands of these, I came round to the view that for the people who wrote, or at least for many of them, asylum seekers weren't actually the issue. The issue for them was that they were detached from society and they felt no one was listening to them. And these were, I could imagine them, as being people who, you know, would complain about something and no one listened and the less people listened, the louder they'd complain, the louder they complained, the less people listened and so it went. And they'd end up ultimately, you know, ringing up late night talkback radio and then eventually they'd be banned even from that. Mm. And I thought, that what a terrible way to exist, being completely ignored by the society that you're part of. So... Yeah, I I think the 
I think I learned something very useful out of all of that. I think they were actually very unhappy people feeling detached from our community. And we've seen something rather similar with the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Yes. I suspect that the people who support him are people who feel that society no longer has a place for them. Yeah. And, you know, no matter what you think, those people need to be noticed. Mm. How you deal with them is another question, but they need to be noticed. And, and, and it all um, reminded me of a conversation I had with Tim Costello some years ago. He told me a story about a time when he used to run the Collins Street Baptist Church in Melbourne. And the Collins Street Baptist Church is a place where a lot of people who are living rough turn up in the hope of getting a free meal and this and that. Anyway, Tim was telling me about a conversation that he had with a bloke who'd turned up at the Collins Street Baptist Church. This bloke uh, had been living rough for a couple of years and he told Tim that that conversation that he was having then and there with Tim was the first time in two weeks that he'd had eye contact with another human being. Wow. And I thought, wow, that is just devastating. Mm. Just can, can anyone imagine what it must be like to go for two weeks without eye contact with another human being? You know, and that's what isolation from society means at its worst, I think. And people screaming at me over email is a sort of precursor to that same sense of alienation. Mm. And so you would you would listen for a start as you were a human and you would respond even if you didn't necessarily agree and we're, we're, we're responding back. They recognise yeah. the human on the other end. Absolutely. Mm. And there, I, there's only once that I departed from that principle and it was one of the best exchanges of emails I ever had. <laughs> a person, this was like, I think this was 2008. <clears throat> I was in Perth doing a case over there and I checked my email. The, email. the hate mail had sort of petered out a year or so before. And I checked my email and I saw some hate mail. I could tell it was hate mail straight away. I don't know how much, what sort of standards you have, but let me quote it verbatim. Mm -hmm. It said, Dear fuckwit, what makes you think that being a QC means anyone is interested in your opinions? Why don't you fuck off and die? Oh, my gosh. Now, <laughs> yeah. Now, responding intellectually to that is <laughs> not an easy thing. It's no. just no hook. And so I borrowed a line I'd been given by someone and I wrote back saying, dear so-and-so, the offer of your sister is interesting. Please send photographs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, thought, I, I thought he would go berserk. <laughs> Did he <laughs> respond? At the time. Um, anyway, he replied very quickly saying, fair enough, I suppose I was a bit over the top. And I thought, wow, hang on. There's an intellect there after all. Mm. So I wrote back saying, look, that's okay. I don't mind. But tell me, I've been talking about this stuff for quite a while. Did you just stumble on it or did it all get too much for you? And he wrote back saying, I should come clean. I'd, I'd had a huge night out. I'd been arguing with a bloke I couldn't stand. We we're arguing about refugees. Actually, I think you're doing quite a good job. So please ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It's still the best exchange of emails I've ever had. Oh, wow. You won't ever forget that one. <laughs> no. And you still get some. I see on Twitter, for example, that you are responding to some not very nice tweets sometimes, accusing you of all types of things. 
Yeah, well, I, I get some hate mail, but it is now mostly on social media. And, yeah, some some people attack me on Twitter and sometimes I reply. I mean, I'm not a sort of regular Twitter user, but if I see it and I think there's a, a fair response to it, I'll answer. But it's it's a bit difficult because 140 characters doesn't give me much scope <laughs> for developing an argument. No. Um, so, you know. I'm a bit bulimic on Twitter, I think. Okay, you go through. But uh, um, through I, I don't look at Facebook very often. I probably get all sorts of attacks on Facebook as well, mm. but I'm not aware of them. Mm. Well, you have so many wonderful articles on your website now that actually goes through those myths and, and the facts and and a lot of the arguments that come up. So you can just start sending the link over. You've, you've done it all. <laughs> I, well, I do sometimes send links. The trouble is that it takes a bit of time to hunt through what's on my website in order to find the link to the right piece in order to answer someone. To be honest, unless a person who's abusing me has got somewhere north of 5,000 followers, I, I'm not sure I can be bothered. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got other things to do with my yeah, time. Yes, definitely. So this is one of the things that I find when I'm talking to people that they struggle with when it comes to speaking up on on these type of issues, like asylum seekers and refugees. They're scared. They're scared that people will have a go at them or they're not confident enough about the details because media and politicians and everyone have complicated it for them and they just don't have that confidence to speak up. They're scared they'll be told that they're stupid or they're wrong or they'll get hate mail like you have. Do you have any advice for them if they're passionate about changing this? They know that it's wrong and they want to they want to play a part in changing what's happening. I, I think the best advice that I could offer is actually quoting Arundhati Roy, who's known out here as the author of The God of Small Things, but who in India is known as a political activist in, in particular against the construction of dams that destroy small farm holdings. Mm -hmm. And Arundhati Roy once said, a thing once seen cannot be unseen. And if you've seen a great moral wrong, to remain silent is as much a political act as to speak against it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really powerful thought. Now, I can understand some people thinking, oh, I don't think my boss will keep me on if I am speaking publicly about these things. Well, mm. that's understandable. I mean, you know, you've got, everyone's got their uh, commitments to family and mortgages and rent and this and that. But unless speaking out threatens your job, then you have to bear in mind that remaining silent threatens our society. Mm. Uh, we, we, Australian society, I fear, is changing. And many people living here don't understand the way it's changing. We still imagine ourselves as, you know, basically we're all from the bush and basically we're all a, a sort of blend of Crocodile Dundee and Dad and Dave or something like that. <laughs> and, and basically we all, you know, we're just sort of accidentally living in cities and, and we all think we're pretty easy going and we believe in a fair go for everyone and all of that. Overseas, nowadays, we are seen as cruel and selfish. Mm. Now, I don't know how many Australians are aware of this sort of existential threat to the things that we value as a community. And it's because political leaders, who in this country are mostly dishonest hypocrites, mm. um, have misled us since 
the time of Tampa, they've misled us about what's going on. There's a very interesting point about this. I mean, the Tampa case was, as I said, my introduction to refugee policy and and I was horrified to learn what we were doing. I was counsel for the asylum seekers in the Tampa litigation. The Tampa litigation started on a Friday night and it ran Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And, and at the end of Wednesday, the judge reserved his decision and handed down his decision at 2.15 in the afternoon, Melbourne time, on the 11th of September, 2001. The timing could hardly have been better for John Howard because eight hours later, the attack on America happened. Yeah. And all of a sudden, in the Western world, you no longer had terrorists, you only had Muslim terrorists. Mm. And all of a sudden, in Australia, you no longer had boat people, you only had Muslim boat people. And John Howard started calling them illegals and queue jumpers, and he stormed to victory at the election at the end of 2001 with the slogan, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstance in which they come. It was his way of shutting down tolerance of people who turn up asking for protection from persecution. And it's a terrible thing. You know, we are now spending billions of dollars locking people up and mistreating them as a deterrent mm -hmm. to deter other people from asking for our help. And although we call them illegal, they don't commit any offence by coming here the way they do. It's not an offence to come here without an invitation, without a visa, and ask for protection. Uh, it's uh, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we were sort of fairly significant in its formation. Um, it's Article 14, I think, of the Universal Declaration says that every human being has the right to seek protection in any country they can reach. Mm. And we are simply contradicting that right by calling people illegal when they come asking for protection from persecution and by mistreating them in the hope that mistreating them will make other people think twice before they ask for our help. Now, the John Howard thing is very interesting. If, if what John Howard had in mind was immigration in the orthodox sense, then he is absolutely right. Immigration, in the sense of a person who moves from one country to another, seek, just seeking a better life, immigration is a selfish transaction on both sides. So someone living in country X thinks, I would like to move to Australia because I will have a better life there. And Australia thinks, yes, well, we're after engineers and doctors and this person's an engineer, so we'll let them in. Mm. That's, that's, that's what immigration is about. And of course, we decide who comes as immigrants and the circumstance in which they come. Um, but uh, it's different with refugees. Take a domestic example. I, li like many people, I'm sure, every now and then I just get a bit exhausted having people calling in at home. Yeah. And I'm entitled to say, I will decide who comes to my home and the circumstance in which they come, and I don't want visitors until Thursday week. It might look a bit unfriendly, but it's legitimate. Yes. So what happens if the next morning... A little kid runs up to the front door, knocks on the door and says, please help me, there's a man with a big knife chasing me. Mm. I could say, come back on Thursday week. But if I did, it would be obviously an awful response. What I would do is bring her in, sit her down, check her story, 
And if she's just having a hissy fit because mum said clean your room, send her home. But if she's fair income, then protect her. That's the difference between migration on the one hand and refugee movement on the other. And Australia is a big place. We can do a lot better. We can do a lot better in the way we treat both people. Yes, that's for sure. We could even do a little better. We could do... Yeah. Oh, there's so yeah, much we, we could do. We, We're doing we nothing. We've got, to get, we've got to get past the political dishonesty. Yeah. You know, if we've been told now for 15 years that this is, these people are illegal and queue jumpers yeah. and more recently, uh, what's his name, Morrison, renamed it Border Protection. Mm. Now, mm. that constant refrain heard by the public at large for 15 years makes them think we are being protected from criminals, yes. which, if it was true, would make sense. But it's false. And politicians of both sides have allowed that lie to guide our policy so that although you get people like um, Abbott and Morrison and Dutton and Turnbull who claim to be Christians mm. and for a couple of them who wear their Christianity on their sleeve, they are behaving in ways that are so at odds with Christian teaching as I remember it yes. that uh, you would have to say these people are hypocrites and their hypocrisy is made all the worse because it's cloaked in dishonesty. Mm -hmm. And the dishonesty is the illegals tag, which is false, the queue jumping tag, which is false. Mm. There isn't a queue. Mm. And anyway, if, if someone's after you with a knife or a gun, do you think the etiquette of the checkout at Coles still applies? <laughs> yes. You know, it's crazy. Yes. Yeah, and the terrorist there's, there's tag a, as well, the terrorist there's an, there's an interesting. There's an interesting, another thought experiment, I suppose, mm -hmm. and I've tested this on a lot of people and I don't know what your listener's profile is but try this one. Mm -hmm. Imagine for a moment that you're a Hazara from Afghanistan. Now we know that Hazaras, they're as badly persecuted in Afghanistan and Pakistan now as Jews were in Germany and Austria before the Second World War. Okay, so if you're a Hazara from Afghanistan or Pakistan, it's 99% certain you're a fair income refugee. Now, imagine you're a Hazara from Afghanistan. Imagine, you know, you've seen your uncle shot down in the street. You've seen your friends killed by the Taliban. You've seen children whose legs are missing because they were used as human minesweeps by the Taliban. You've seen buses stopped and all the Hazaras taken off and executed and left by the roadside. You've seen all of this and you reckon it's all getting a bit too dangerous, so you make a run for it. Mm. And you make your way down through Pakistan and India, through um, Malaysia to Indonesia. You're heading in the direction of Australia. And when you, each of those countries you've gone through are not signatories to the Refugees Convention, so they do not offer protection and they don't. Uh, offer you the safety against being sent back to where you've come from. But you get to Indonesia, it's easy. You get there, you get a visa on entry, um, no problem. But after a month, the visa runs out. And at the end of that month, if you're found by the authorities, you'll be thrown in jail. So if you've got your kids with you, you can't send them to school. If you send them to school, you'll be found, you'll all be thrown in jail. You can't get a job, because if you get a job, uh, you'll be found and you'll be thrown in jail. 
So you've got a choice. You can hide in the shadows until some country offers to resettle you safely. On current figures, that'll take between 20 and 30 years. Or you can take your courage in both hands and use a people smuggler and get on a boat and head in the direction of Australia. Mm. Now, what are you going to do? Every person listening to this podcast should ask themselves, what would they do in those circumstances? Mm. I've never yet met any Australian who wouldn't get on a boat. Mm -hmm. So what makes us think that there is anything worthwhile, anything even arguably decent, Mm. about mistreating people who do exactly what we would do mm -hmm. if we had the ill fortune to be in their shoes. Yes, it's horrific. It's it's heartbreaking to think that that's what we're doing to so many people and for so long and it's uh, not much side of it changing. <laughs> and, and, and it's all done. Uh, you may remember the 2013 federal election. Both major parties tried to win political favour by out-promising each other on the amount of cruelty with which they would treat boat people. Mm. Imagine if they had promised cruelty to animals. That, that wouldn't have won them an election, but promising cruelty to boat people, that was seen to be an election winner. Mm. Uh, I, I think that was probably the low, lowest point in Australia's moral history. Mm. And uh, we should all be ashamed that we have politicians who are prepared to do that. Do you have any current theories for how we can change that, how we can get them to just, I don't know, how we can change it? Is it up to the people still and we're just going to keep going one at a time? To... I, I, th I think we need a political leader. We haven't had a political leader in this country for a long time. Um, there are certainly no political leaders in parliament at the moment. Um, their, their, their idea of political leadership is the Jim Hacker uh, idea, you know, from, yes, Prime Minister, where he famously said, I'm their leader. I must follow them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's what our politicians are doing now. Political leadership involves standing up and saying, I know you don't like this, but this is what I believe and this is why you should agree with me. Let them set out the arguments. Let them say, this is what the Australian character is. We're betraying it and we've been betraying it for the last 15 years. Let's behave decently. You know, when you consider it, we, we get all these, you know, the, these boat people have been placed offshore. Nauru is one of the two places used for offshore processing and resettlement. They're sent there with the promise that they will never be allowed into Australia. Uh, and Nauru is an independent republic. It's in the central Pacific. Its land area is smaller than the land area of Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne. Now, what, what sense of decency makes us think that it is sensible to cast onto a tiny island like Nauru people who would fit equally well in Tullamarine Airport. I mean, it's not like Australia is a tiny crowded country. Mm. We, we really can do things better, but we refuse to because there's no political leadership. And this is probably, well, it is a big question, but how do we get that? How do we get that political leadership? How do we find that leader? I, I, I wish I knew. I've had all sorts of ideas about how things might be changed. I've tried all sorts of ideas over the last 15 years, and to be quite blunt, none of them have worked. Um, so I don't know. I think if it's going to change, it'll only change because the community starts to see the light. Mm. How that can be done when politicians keep lying to us is hard to know. Mm. But 
small step by small step, we are embracing really terrible things. Um, I don't know if you know one of one of the um, one of the myths on which all of this is based. A myth which is designed to make us feel better is that we have to do this so as to avoid the risk of people drowning at sea. Mm. Now, of course, every drowning is awful, but the reality is that refugee movement is dangerous, and about two or three percent of all refugees on the move end up perishing in their attempt to reach safety. So. Yes, people do drown in their attempt to get to Australia. That is true. But what if we dissuade them? Now, first of all, we, we haven't actually stopped the boats from setting out. You know, stop the boats was originally, you know, stop the boats altogether. Then it became stop the boats from landing here. Um, we know that boats are still setting out, but they get turned back because we've put a ring of steel around the moat that surrounds Australia. Mm -hmm. um, what happens to the people when their boats are turned back? Do any of them drown? We don't know, and we're not allowed to know because it's an on-water matter. Um, what happens if those people uh, don't get on a boat and stay in Indonesia and get thrown into some awful Indonesian jail? What's their fate? Well, we don't know. What if they are so dissuaded um, that they stay put in Afghanistan or in Iran or Iraq or wherever it is that they are? If they are killed by their persecutors, they're still dead, just as dead as if they drowned, but we don't know about it. What if they go north and try to head towards Europe and drown in the Mediterranean? They're still dead, but we won't know about it. Mm. The drowning excuse seems to me nothing more than an attempt to save our own conscience from the embarrassment of seeing the realities of what happens to people who are desperately trying to get somewhere safe. Mm. That's all it is. Now, there was, you may remember, um, what was it now? I think it was early this year, uh, a man called Omid Masumali committed suicide on Nauru by setting himself on fire. Mm. He and his family had been accepted as refugees, but no one could tell them when or where they would ever be resettled. So that for the time being, they were facing the prospect of living on Nauru amongst local Nauruans who are incredibly hostile to them. And he was so desperate at that prospect that he publicly doused himself with petrol and set himself on fire, mm. and he died. And Kathy Wilcox, who is a very fine cartoonist, captured the thing perfectly in a cartoon. It was a very simple drawing of a man engulfed in flames, and the caption read simply, not drowning. Mm. Do you ever feel complete despair and loss of hope when you keep seeing these things and when you keep seeing the new lows that that our government and is going to? No, because I have to try and remain optimistic or else I would really need to cut my throat. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you, losing hope is one of the worst ways to end. And, of course, that is exactly what we do to boat people, yeah. we one, a, a number of people who've worked in healthcare on Manus and on Nauru have said, we are told, make sure you say nothing that gives them any hope. Now, when you take innocent people and lock them up for years on end and deny them any prospect of hope, what is that going to do to them? Mm. Imagine yourself in that position. What will happen to you if you lose all hope 
of anything better than the wretched, wretchedness and misery that we manage to inflict on people. Yes. It's you know, a, I, 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 can't, I can't lose hope. So what do you do when you get to those points where you are feeling that despair? Do you just keep on going another step in front of keep on the next? Uh, red wine, good scotch. <laughs> yeah. you know, music. Yeah, and the art. The art. Yes. Great music, you know. Yeah. Listening to great music is immensely comforting. And seeing painters, God, you, you want to you know what it's like to be faced with the prospect of hopelessness. Try being a creative artist. So, you know, in my in my darkest moments, more more of the arts. Try and do something that gives someone else a bit of hope. Mm. Um, these things do make a difference. Yes, and you keep taking those steps and hoping for an accident. Maybe our next political leader well, right. will be an accident. <laughs> yeah. You, you just never know what's going to make a difference. You never know. And, and you know, I sort of keep on coming up with insane ideas and give them all a try. But all, all the while, look, I mean, my life's ambition until I got involved in all of this stuff, my life's ambition was to do what I could to help the arts. I'm not under any illusions. I think all of us, you know, we die. We're remembered by the people who knew us. Um, and when they die, that's it. Mm. Time's up. Um, the the best the best anyone can hope for to leave a mark in this world is by supporting the arts. Because you know, I mean, I this may sound ridiculous, and it is ridiculous actually, but I have great admiration for an architect called Solotinsky. Have you ever heard of Solotinsky? Probably not. No. Solotinsky was an architect who lived in Russia, I think, during Shostakovich's lifetime. Solotinsky was a Jew. He was sent to a concentration camp and was killed. Shostakovich's second piano trio, which is one of the most exquisitely, um, powerfully moving pieces of music I've ever heard, is dedicated to Solotinsky. And but for the fact that Shostakovich dedicated a piece of music to Solotinsky, I would never have heard of him. Mm -hmm. But I often think of Solotinsky because of Shostakovich's second piano trio. And for anyone who's listening, get hold of a copy of it. Shostakovich only wrote two piano trios. The second is incredible. It is breathtakingly wonderful. And listen to it and think mm -hmm. of an architect called Solotinsky who died in a concentration camp. Mm, I'll hunt it down and put it in the show notes so that people Good. can listen to it, along with, oh, my gosh, so many of uh, different parts of the arts that you've mentioned today and writings and things like that. I've got a list here, actually, of things to go and add to my my list of joy to listen to and soak up. Yeah, well, um, you know, you, you asked what I do when I'm sort of feeling a bit desperate. One of the pieces of music that most consoles me. And, and I have to say, Shostakovich's second piano trio is not consoling music. Yeah. If anything, it's music to make you shake your fists at the world. <laughs> and, uh, but for consoling music, um, there's the middle movement of Beethoven's String Quartet number 15. Mm -hmm. And it, its its nickname is the Heilige Dankgesang, or Hymn of Thanksgiving. Um, and its history is interesting. 
Beethoven by the eighteen the early eighteen twenties, Beethoven was completely deaf, completely isolated from the world. Uh, he had started concentrating only on writing string quartets. He wrote his late string quartets during the years from eighteen twenty to about twenty five or six when he died. And in I think March of eighteen twenty four, uh, Beethoven became very ill and uh, he he was bedridden for the whole month his doctor was seeing him every day and aspirating turbid fluid from his abdomen every day i mean it was really awful and he really looked like he was going to die but suddenly at the start of april he got better all of a sudden just completely better overnight and he got up and went to his desk and wrote one movement for string quartet not in a major key, not in a minor key, but in what's called the Lydian mode. And the Lydian mode was one of the many modes uh, of early music where the notes don't have quite the same relationship to each other as we get in modern major and minor keys. You remember sometimes you hear a, a performance of green sleeves and it, every now and then there's a note and you think, oh, that's not quite where it ought to be. And that's because originally Green Sleeves was written in one of the old modes. Anyway, so it's written in the Lydian mode. It has a haunting, unearthly quality about it. He then, he called that piece a hymn of thanksgiving from one restored to health and put it away. He then wrote his 11th string quartet and his 12th and his 13th and his 14th. Then he started on his 15th. And he wrote two short movements and then put the hymn of thanksgiving in the middle and then flanked it at the other end with two short movements. And the hymn of thanksgiving, the middle movement of the of the 15th string quartet of Beethoven is astonishing. It's it really gets it's it's music, you can tell it is music written by someone who has looked his creator in the eye and has said, I'm not ready just yet. Mm. It is wonderful. Mm. And anyway, that's it's very consoling. Well, I know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> Good. I've got, I've got some listening to do. Yes. Yeah, well, be careful. Beethoven's late quartets are not easy listening to start with. Mm. Um, Beethoven's string quartets were written in three phases. His early quartets, the Opus 18, six quartets in Opus 18, then his middle string quartets, um, which are typically Opus 59 and 74, and then his late quartets, which start with Opus 95. And the late quartets, at the time, um, the string quartet that premiered most of his uh, music, um, they said it was unplayable. They thought it was just so off the air as to be beyond the reach of any player. Um, now, of course, it is standard fare for people at, you know, the Academy of Music and so on. But back then unplayable yeah wow so so it's probably if if anyone is going to jump into the deep end with the beethoven string quartets i would strongly recommend listen to the opus 74 the harp which is mm -hmm. really enjoyable it's a very it's a very accessible piece of music and mm -hmm. then listen to uh, maybe number 12 mm -hmm. and then number 15 which is the which is the hymn of thanksgiving oh, sorry what contains the hymn of thanksgiving i should mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. Wonderful. You've just created a little playlist for us. I'll pull together. 
Uh. Oh, great. Well, I've used up a lot of time. I've got so many questions I could talk all day with you. But I think before we end, maybe since I know a lot of bloggers and coaches and creatives are, are listening, what can we tell them that they can go and do from here when it comes to these issues with the arts we're going I'm going to have a nice list after this with human rights and refugees is it also keeping taking on steps uh, becoming more informed like actually being more informed around where we can with choices around political leaders and speaking up more is it that is that what we can do for the time being um speaking up more is good another thing that I think pretty much anyone can do um is to write to their federal MP. And, and frankly, I don't care which party the federal MP is from because really, to be honest, the, the Greens is the only party who have anything like an enlightened view about treatment of boat people. Mm. I don't agree with every detail of their policies, but um, at least they don't believe in locking people up. But somewhere on my website, there is a um, a, a suggestion for how to write to an MP, mm. what you don't do is write to them long, detailed letter explaining why they're wrong. Mm. Uh, on the contrary, what you need to do is write asking them one or two very simple questions and leave it at that. Um, so the classic letter to an MP would be, Dear X, I'm a voter in your electorate. Do you think boat people are quote unquote illegal? Mm. If yes, what offence do they commit? Yours faithfully. Now, a letter like that gives them nowhere to hide. And they'll either ignore it, in which case you write again asking the same questions, or they'll send you a two-page screed outlining their policy, mm. in which case you reply saying, thank you for your letter, it didn't answer my questions, here they are again, A, B, yours faithfully. Or they write back some sort of bluster and check it carefully. If it doesn't answer the question, write again. Yes. And just keep on writing until they are forced to face the reality and you know it's kind of fun <laughs> uh, and it's it, it's worth it really is worth doing because one thing I've learned in my rather unhappy uh, um, interaction with politicians over the last 15 years is a lot of them haven't the faintest idea what's going on no. we assume that they know what they're doing but actually all they're doing is following the party line <laughs> yeah. and they do not know they do not know the facts I learned this by accident in uh, maybe 2002 or three, I was involved in a, a panel session at, I think, Kerrang or Swan Hill or somewhere in the north of Victoria anyway. And the panel members were Julia Gillard, who was opposition immigration spokesperson at the time, mm -hmm. and among others, John Forrest, who was the National Party member for the area and... Uh, in any event, I was sort of putting questions to this panel in front of the audience, and they had all introduced themselves in, you know, giving a brief bio. And John Forrest had introduced himself as being a committed Christian and blah, blah, blah. So I got them all to accept that boat people weren't illegal in the sense they'd committed no offence and that we treat them harshly and this and that. And remember, this is 2002, so Pacific Solution was pretty fresh. Mm. And I then said to John Forrest, now, John, you um, introduced yourself as a committed Christian 
How do you reconcile what the government's doing with Christian teaching? And his jaw hit the floor. He was absolutely gobsmacked. Uh, and he sort of floundered around for a bit. And someone in the, uh, someone else on the panel said, oh, you can't ask him that unless you're a Christian. And I'm not. <laughs> uh, anyway, the audience response suggested that that intervention wasn't a subject of general agreement. So I pressed on with it, and he, he eventually sort of blustered out something. But the following week, I got a phone call from John Forrest and it was clear that he was devastated. He had never actually put the facts together and realised that what he was doing was irreconcilable with the beliefs that he held and genuinely held. And he spent the rest of his career in politics doing a lot of active work behind the scenes trying to help things for people in detention now, it's only a tiny victory, but it's a marker of the fact that if you do something that wakes up some of our politicians to the reality of what they're doing, force them to face their own moral beliefs, and eventually, with luck, they might come to the view that what they're doing is impossible to reconcile with anything that they regard as decent. Yes. What a great way to finish. Thank you, because I think that is exactly it. It's it's continuing to just try, as you've been doing for a long time by the sounds of it, trying to change a mind or just ask those questions that get them to think um, differently to, I guess, the way we've been programmed uh, by politicians and and the news that's put out there that we, if we keep asking those questions and keep doing the work, hopefully one by one we'll get there. And hopefully not in too long while those poor people suffer. Yeah, well, uh, I guess the point is never lose hope. Mm. It's always possible as long as we keep trying. There's one thing about this. You know, if you try, if you try to change the system, you might succeed. If you give up, you definitely won't succeed. Yes. Yes, and especially I find for me, I want to live a life in alignment with my values and know that I'm living a life of integrity. And if I don't get involved in these things, I'm not doing that. So whether it's successful or not, I just couldn't live that life. Yeah, well, good. I, I, I hope, you, hope you managed to persuade all of your listeners to uh, that same position. I have a feeling that uh, most of the people who are attracted to my work and to the podcast are probably already there. So hopefully they can use what you've mentioned to persuade others in their life. Yeah. Incidentally, if people are inclined to write to their MPs, mm. it's probably worth hunting out the bit on my website where I talk about this because I think I've got a list of a dozen or so questions you can ask. Mm. You know, in the unlikely chance that you actually get an answer from a politician that <laughs> deals with the question, then you can ask them the next question and the next one and the next one. Yes. It's worth doing. You at least keep them very busy. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll include that post as well in the in the show notes. So there's going to be lots of homework for people if they, if they choose to go there. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. You've been so generous for your time and information and I'm beyond words grateful. Thank you. Thanks very much, Naomi. Thank you for listening to the Dream for Others podcast. 
If you want to connect with like-minded people who are passionate about using their platform, passions and uniqueness for social good, head on over to Facebook and search for our private group called the Dream for Others community. For episode notes, further inspiration and access to my award-nominated free resources, please visit naomiarnold.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate if you'd please subscribe, leave a review in iTunes and share it wide and far. Let's continue to dream for others and I'll talk to you soon.